Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Oh, the shark baby has such teeth there. And it shows them. Pearly white, just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath, babe, and it keeps it uh, out of sight. You know when that shark bites. Welcome everyone to this latest edition of Macklin's Take with myself, Andy Clark, and Matt Macklin alongside me as always. I hope you're all well. So today we're bringing you an episode that people have been asking us for really since we since we started doing this and we always intended to do it and that's to get out to a proper old established amateur club and, and speak to people on the ground speak to people on the on the front line about how boxing is at the grassroots and about what exactly their their job entails because when youngsters walk through the door of the gym it, it is about training them to box but it's not just about that everybody is aware of that if you can train champions then then brilliant it gives you some pictures to put on the wall and and things for people to aspire to but it's about making everybody who walks through that door feel better about themselves and helping them to achieve their potential and be the best the best version of themselves that that they can be that's the the unique role that boxing clubs abcs have always have always played and we are underneath an archway in Lambeth, which is exactly where you should be if you come down to a proper boxing club underneath an archway. It's classic territory. And this club's been going for over 100 years. It's been in its current premises since just after the Second World War. And so many fighters have come through here. The likes of Dave Charnley, uh, Cornelius Bozer-Edwards, David Hay, to name some of, the, some of the big names. But just as important have been the, the thousands that have come through here and, and gone on to make successes of their lives. And the key person down here for so many years, of course, was Mick Carney alongside, alongside Billy Webster, but in charge of Fitzroy Lodge, because that's, that's where we are, and most of you will have guessed that by now after that incredibly lengthy preamble, is Mark Rygate. Mark, thanks very much for having us down here today, first of all. Right, you're welcome. It's, uh, it's great to come down. So just first of all, tell us how you ended up here and how you ended up staying. My first boxing club was a place in Fulton Heath, which is in Croydon, a place called the Croydon ABC. I think Croydon at the time, there was about three boxing clubs. You had Addington Boxing Club, then South Northern Victory, which Matt I know about, and then you had Croydon ABC. Um, I started school as a junior, as a, well, started school, senior school, and then I had uh, a lot of my mates who were a lot older. They all turned around to me one day and said they was going boxing. Didn't really have any interest in boxing. 
but because they're my mates, I went away with them. Turned up at this gym above a pub. Went in, walked into the gym, opened the door. It's either above a pub or underneath a railway arch, isn't it? Yeah. That, that's that's where the best ones are. Yeah, yeah I didn't realise it was it was tiny, tiny little gym. Like we were saying about the ring earlier, the ring was about four pallets the size of it. There was about three punch bags, and there there was about I think twenty or thirty kids in the gym. And uh, you go to a boxing club. I walked in there, and natural reaction is all the other kids are looking you up and down, seeing who these new lot are walking in through the door. And then um, I think we've done a little bit of a warm-up and things together. And then um, next thing you know, I'm sparring. And I got into the ring. Didn't realise there's a bit of an etiquette with sparring where the person that's been doing it a little bit longer sort of takes it easy with a beginner. Unless they take liberties, then he's going to let you know. And then I got in the ring, and my first person I ever sparred with was a fellow called Wayne Alexander. And uh, he come up to me. Jesus Christ, that's <laughs> that's heavy work. Yeah. A baptism of fire, I think they yeah. call that. Just not, nice and relaxed, walked up to me. My first reaction was hit him as hard as I could. And I hit him, he staggered back. But then he looked at me as if to say, you're going to get it now. And by the end of the round, I was in the corner with my knee up in the air. I had been from every punch that was coming my way. But I was there for a bit. had one coach, which was John Niverson. Then the next coach was a fellow called Fred Puttock. Um, and then my final coach was a fellow called Stuart Good he lived on the same estate as me growing up he basically used to box for this place the Fitzroy Lodge or his whole family did and then um, I think he what used to happen here was when you become an amateur you decided to turn professional you didn't really get involved with the club anymore you sort of make a guide you off into the right direction then you'll go and box for whoever you're going to go and box for but most of the pros that have gone on have never really come back I'd never been involved in boxing, so he decided to come to Croydon because I was only half decent one there, looked after me, got me thinking about boxing, got me into boxing. Next thing you know, Mick's asked him to come down here as being a coach, and then he came down here. And that's how I ended up here when I was about 19 years old. And what were your first impressions of this place when you walked through the door? Because as I say, it's been here since since 1946. It's, it's a very established club now but there's always that feeling of slight nervousness when when you push the door any door whatever yeah. it may be for the for the first time and, and and that's why you know what it feels like for everybody else who comes comes in here was there any kind of you'd been boxing already but was there any kind of yeah. trepidation i mean even you must have had this when you first started boxing yeah definitely i remember the first time I walked, so when you were setting the scene there about one of the archways or above a pub and i had to laugh because small eight boxing club when I was but they've moved now but back then they're on Faisley Street in Digbeth would have, which would have been very much peak of blinder territory yeah. as, it, as seen in the film but I remember going up the stairs it was an I mean it was a real worn out derelict type building um, above a calf you know walked up the steps and it was like you know you could hear the music banging before you got to the door and then you'd open the door which was kind of midway in the gym so like when you opened the door and you walked in you were in the middle of the gym everyone was looking at you to the right was the ring which was backed up against that wall yeah. and then you know to, to the left and up, there were some changing rooms but um, it was you know it was I mean it was as rough and ready as you come there was no high tech equipment nothing like that there was a few old photos pictures fight posters on the wall there were six tatty old bags and a, and a ring you know good ring big high ring 
and um, and tunes blare in loads of boxes in there very much uh, us against the world atmosphere yeah. and uh, you know it was well, there were some good fighters there you know we, like, we mentioned before we started speaking on this mark uh, Mark and Paul Ramsey they were good uh, ABA champions yeah. both turned pro ended up being journeymen but you know when they turned pro they, they were good prospects and uh, you know both of them fought Ricky Hatton I think Mark fought him twice uh, and, and probably a who's who of prospects around that time but um yeah, I think I think that the time when you walk in the door for the first time, I think that's that's a moment you never forget. So, what was it about this place that, that means that you're still here now? It's the people. I think it's the people that uh, you, I don't think you realise what a coach does for you or what the people involved in the boxing, whether it's the, your 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 gym mates, whether it's the people just running the club. The people that you're boxing against, it's, it's, it's weird. You get a nice, you get a relationship with them. Where um, I don't think I've ever fallen out with with any boxer that I've boxed or anything like that. Become friends with them, got a lot of mutual respect. Anyone that's basically got in the ring and box, you got to give them 100% mutual respect. But um, yeah, it's just like when I first came here, it was uh, I used to come here, but the first time I came in through the door. Mick sort of off. Mick knew me anyway, but didn't really know me. But then when Mick, so at the end of the day, when Mick did, he did pass away, Mick sort of knew me really when I first started boxing because he was a matchmaker and he knew about us. And like uh, Bill, Bill when he was there, didn't really know Bill either. But then the amount of time that you're here, it's like I've had the best times of my life down this place. And it's basically made me who I am today. So, I mean, professional boxing you know the glamour and the television and the money and everything but I think I know a lot of fighters and I've had great professional careers their fondest days really and their fondest memories were the old amateur clubs and it's almost like um, an extended family really a lot of the time and um, and I I think there's something you know we're talking about opening the door you said about the first bar with Wayne Alexander you're going in there you're out your depth these kids more experience it's going to take it a bit like first but you're maybe aggressive so you stick it on him you know you get a bit of a clumping but you know it's like having your first fight then as an amateur or you're going into the championships it's building character all the time because you're facing fears all the time and you're you're, you're facing them and you're dealing with them and you're getting past them and you're having this you know you lose your first fight you're heartbroken you come back it's I I think I think amateur boxing um, especially because you're a kid and you're going through it, it, it it really instill something steely in yeah. your character and, and whether you go on and become an international and professional fighter and have a great career or, or not I think it's something that really kind of it, it, it's an asset to you for the rest of your life and whatever yeah. road you go down after that yeah was it something you needed at that point in your life did you did you need that kind of that discipline and that that that, that regime where, or if where, you hadn't had it could there yeah, have been problems I'd have been totally different I'd have been not. I definitely know it's like now if I'd, have, if I'd have turned professional it might have worked for me it might not have worked for me so you sit down and think about it now if I did turn pro everyone want, it's like me I had all the posters up in my bedroom I want to be like that fella there all the Sugar Ray Leonard's Marvin Agler's that's what I want to be like at the time Tyson was my favourite favourite fighter and I was like yeah I want to be like him and do whatever but um Crowd, the sort of crowd that I'm not around with, it's like out of all my mates, they're still up to no good now. Whereas I'm not. I've been structured, 
led down a path where I know what's right, what's wrong. I know not to do this, not to do that. It's like going back to Mick. When, when I first met Mick, Mick, Mick used to be immaculately dressed. And uh, he used to be like a top bloke, top, top geezer. And I used to be in the gym some days. And I used to watch all these people come in. I'd be like reading a book about a South London gangster or someone this, someone that. They'll come into the gym. And they'll come into the gym and I'll go, oh, wow. But the amount of respect that they give Mick, and then I realise after a while, you, you don't need to do anything to get that respect because the amount of time that you give up and the amount of energy that you give up, that's where you got his respect from. I, th- I think that's, that's really key, isn't it? Because I'm just reading a book at, uh, at the minute by, by Don McRae, his latest one in, in uh, Sunshine and in Shadow, and it talks about how Jerry Story in Belfast managed to yeah. um, unite both religions through through boxing, or rather, he was allowed to coach both religions, and it wasn't it wasn't a problem for him. and And he said the reason was is that violent men, because we're talking about terrorists generally, uh, in that particular instance, they they respect hardship and they respect sports where a lot is is asked of you, and and that's. That's certainly the case with, with, with boxing and, and, and as you say that's there is that element of street cred to it, but but that might be why you originally come, but then when you get here you realise that it's not it's it's not all about knocking people out like Tyson. There's there's a lot of hard work to be done. So I've been in this gym some days where I've had some of the highest people in society, some of the worst people in society, some of the top criminals in London and loads of old Bill. Everyone's been in there having a laugh, doing whatever. As soon as you walk outside them doors, everyone goes off into their own little directions in what they're going to do and whatever they choose to do. So, but when everyone's in there, we've always been taught, no matter what you are, what religion, colour, race, everyone's the same. And that's what we're always taught. Everyone's the same. So we're all doing the same thing. And that's what we're all working towards, the same thing. A few years ago, um, my old amateur coach, Pat Benson, He's in his mid-80s now. He won uh, an award. I don't know if it was BR&B or, or, or Midlands today. It was one of those media outlets had a, an award. It was the Unsung Heroes. And he won it. But I, I, think, I, think, I think the coach of an amateur club in any city in the world, that's the UK, should probably, should probably win the Unsung Hero every single year because there's that many of them in all various different parts of this country. Oh, and and all, all the world. That are just the amount of hours they're putting in, and, and boxing was always the, generally the sport for the underprivileged, wasn't it? You yeah. know what I mean? And you didn't, didn't cost much money to go to boxing. You, I know it was small league. Didn't, we didn't, no one paid anything. Sometimes that, that's, you were supposed to pay a pound a week, but I don't think he even collected it. Do you know what I mean? It was just yeah. whatever. It's, just, and, it's the same down here. It's like kids pay a pound when they come down. Seniors pay a fiver. Basically, they pay their space, pay their annual membership, which pays towards their affiliation. We kit them all out. We give them the kit, the training to box in. We get, say, like people donate boots or donate gloves to them. We end up giving them the gloves rather than store them or sell them. But it's uh, constantly. It's like my first coach. Didn't really know much about boxing, but he always, no matter where we was, all over England, London, wherever. He always dropped me off to my doorstep at night. He didn't drop me off at the boxing club and make me make my own way home. He always dropped me off on my doorstep. So if he had about 10 kids in the van, that means he's got to drop off 10 kids. And he dropped them. So that's why I do exactly the same. When the kids go somewhere, I make sure I drop them off on their doorstep and go wherever. And he goes back to that again in the gym. 
when you're a boxer, you come into the gym. You come in the gym, you might do what you're told, what the coach is telling you. You do the bag, you do your workout, you do your spot. Once your session's over, you go and have a shower, go home. Then you become a coach, you become a coach. Next thing you're doing, you're looking after the kids. You might tidy up the gym after, have a little chat, travel about looking after kids, other people's kids. Then you go home. But then when you run the gym, you've got to find the funding to look after the gym. You've got to find all the equipment. You've got to try and get all the money off people. You've got to try and arrange the shows. You've got to do this and do that. And it's just, then you realise how much that they've done. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in health, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desire and Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! There's no doubt that um, in amateur, particularly in amateur boxing clubs, and from especially ones who started at young age together and have gone through the ranks, even years after, like now, you know, people in the mid thirties, forties, whatever, and you see them, and they, and they probably never, it, maybe they never even boxed senior, but they, maybe they only boxed for four or five years as a, as a schoolboy junior. But you see when they meet up, whether it's at a, a function or something, there's, and it's hard to explain this really, but there's a bond and there's a respect that. Yeah. Unless you know, it's very difficult to explain it to someone. Would you, would you agree with that, Mark? Whoever I've, whoever I've boxed with, Wayne, Wayne Alexander, the very first person I spoke with, I'm always seeing him, have chats with him. He might help me out with something, I might help him out with something. Craig Stanley, who I very started boxing with, his, his brother is now with my sister. So I've known the whole family since I was 11 years old, so he's like a brother as well. And then I've got all the boxers down there. I've got Nigel Travis, who basically, he's, they're like family. He is family. Family, you've got Eddie Lamb, who's family. And then you've got all the other boxers. And so we, we meet up, we go to christenings, we go to birthday parties, surprise celebrations. And so I might even do a reunion for all the boxers just to come down and have a little chat and whatever. And the same with all the committee members, all the committee members, the people that used to box for the club. And they're all still here, still come back, still train. Most of the people that come here, basically people that have been coming here for about 20 years, and they still come down. We all know them, cab drivers, police officers, firefighters, people who work for the government, all come down. And they're still part of the club. I, there's definitely something about boxing in terms of in terms of the kind of empathy that it inspires. And I think I think empathy is probably the strongest force there is in terms of bonding people if you've, if you've been through the same thing you see two fighters at the end of a fight they've been through that together if you've just boxed you've both boxed you might not have boxed each other but you've been through that together and to take that a step further a, a crucial part of your job is the fact that kids will come through these doors and, and, and they want to train how to box but they're looking for a bit more than that as well and you grew up in, in, in inner London if they're from around here, if they feel like you know 
what their life is like because you lived it a few years ago, then that's another thing, isn't it? And that's another kind of aspect of, of your job, I think, to try and get to get to know the youngsters who, who come here because a lot of them, it's you know, life's hard. Mick done the same with us. He had, he had his fate. It's quite funny because I think he like a little rogue sometimes, a little bit of a rogue, a little bit of a cheeky kid, whatever, but he still knew how to control them. He say things, he say, say one thing to you. I think I've never really had an argument with him, but I might have had a moan about something. And he'd just say one little thing, one little thing. I go away and think about it. And all of a sudden, I go, oh yeah, you're right with that. And then say, from me, for me boxing to being a coach, and then Mick was here. I remember we was going out to New York one time to box out there against the um, NYPD and the, the sheriff. To me, the trips were the best things because the coaches were a bit more relaxed and you see a different side to them and all this and that. And I've had the best times of my life going around on trips. And I remember we was walking down the street one day and one, I was talking to one of the other coaches and he said to me, he goes, well, that's nice what Mick done for you. And I was like, what's that then? He goes, uh, got you the job working for the kids, teaching them boxing and all that. I went, no, he ain't said nothing to me. So then I said to Mick, I went, um, what's this job then, Mick? And he had just had a chat with someone, got some funding. Next thing you know, I'm down here teaching kids. Is that the same background as me? Boxing. Trying to um, structure them the same way as me and trying to help them out. And then from there, I've been down here ever since. And then, so doing the best job, really, that someone could love. Well, I've got an absolute blinding opportunity to be down here all the time, every day, come from my house down to here. But then, I say, because he used to say to me, when I was finished, he used to tell me to go home. And then I would go, no, nah, I'll stay here and help out the juniors and do this and do that. And he used to say, no, go home. But then I didn't realise that you've got the family life of it as well. And so I've got a grown-up daughter, I've got a wife. I'm down here more and I am in my, in my house and she don't hardly see me my wife or my daughter now I've got a granddaughter so I've got to make a bit more effort in coming here and then going home so I think uh, I think families of, of people who run boxing clubs have got to be very very patient they've got to have a patience of, of saints really I thought about getting my missus involved sometimes and I'm like no way it's like Travis and that yeah, there's no way I'm getting her involved yeah but it's interesting when you look at some of the the uh, the men who've come through the club there's, there's, there's yourself uh, Travis who you mentioned Nigel Travis who we see in corners with Jamie Moore all the time he runs he's, Moss Side his real name's Dribbles Dri- yeah. <laughs> he runs Moss Side up in Manchester Eddie Lamb who you mentioned who, who worked alongside Alan Smith um, we see him actively involved in, in, in professional boxing a, a lot of the time Ed Robinson who we work with yeah. at Sky Ed. he's, he's our gaffer man. at Sky basically uh, I bumped into Johnny Harris at a film festival not that long ago. He boxed at the lodge. Johnny Harris is an actor. For people who don't recognise the name, you will recognise his face. This is England. Jawbone. He he wrote and and starred in that. Not much in terms of age separates all of you. No. But and you're all just doing such interesting things. I mean, Mick Carney. You know, God bless him. He must. He'd have loved that, wouldn't he? Because you're not all going to be boxing champions, obviously, but you yeah. just look at what you're all doing, and that, that must have been what he was... That was yeah. the idea, wasn't it? You can have kids in the gym which go on to be champions, which I think he's had all of that. He's had the kids that are champions and, and done it. Realise, after a while, you realise, I ain't worried about that. 
if you do it, it's a bonus. But I want a gym full of kids that, are, that get along with each other. Just a gym, a gym that's buzzing. And I think that's um, when we was all down there. Johnny, Johnny had boxed a junior, then he's gone off to do whatever he's gone to do. But he still pops back into the club, sees how the club's down. And through the boxing years, that's how we all sort of know each other. But like Travis and Eddie, we all boxed each other in, in the same sort of era, in the same team. And we're still, we're still involved in each other, best mates, go and see each other. As we said, go to weddings, funerals, whatever. And we're always involved. But they're like family as well. It's a bit like that saying, isn't it? It's not, you know, life's not about the, uh, the destination. It's about the journey. It's a bit yeah. like, yeah, you, you're training for the ABAs or the schoolboys or whatever. But really, it's just the buzz in the gym. Yeah. Giving you something to focus on. They're yeah. not out in the streets getting up to no good. Yeah. And really, the likes of the Mick Carney and Pat, Pat Benson's and all the Mickey Burns, all these people over the year, they're, they're like social workers, really. Yeah. <laughs> they're not just yeah. boxing coaches. They're yeah. like, cause I, I mean, I know Pat Benson, my coach, Pat never really showed me boxing. Pat used to just sit on the ring every night and you go in, and there was, it was kind of, you know, former fighters that were like, you know, that would have took me on the pad and done this thing. Pat was more just like the grandfather of the gym, yeah. you know what I mean? And yeah. I'd imagine Mick Carney and these guys that are senior, senior guys, senior guys in the gym, they're more, it's more yeah. that, isn't it? Mick, Mick never used to train me. It was like my, my coach was a fellow called Stuart Good. Uh, so I remember Mick, I was down there one day and Mick come walking past me. He was like, he went up, wait a minute, wait a minute. He put a pad on, he only put one pad on. And I sort of looked at him and thought, well, he's going to take me on the pads. Never ever took me on the pads before. And he sort of walked up to me. He went like that, held his hand up for me to jab. So I jabbed, took the pad off and walked off. That was it. So I was like, okay. So I think he's just telling me to jab. That's what he wanted me to do. But yeah. He, um, the running of the club, that's what Mick used to do. The matchmaking. Billy Webster was the coach, the head coach. And then you got all the other coaches which were, were under Bill. And they're the ones that used to do all the graft. It's interesting watching Jawbone as well, actually. If anybody hasn't seen it, most people listening to this will have seen it, I think. But if you haven't, watch it because it's a really good, really authentic boxing film. Like loads of films about boxing down the years, but it's, it's very real. And I think they recreated this place over in Bristol, I remember Johnny telling me. But the... The main coach in the film is called Bill Carney. Travis is in it. He's yeah. got like a role as an extra. And I'm sure there are lots of other references in there that you would get, that you would pick up on that I, that I necessarily yeah. wouldn't. But you can see just what a massive impact this place had on, on Johnny Harris yeah. um, I, and why he made a film about boxing. Yeah, I, I laughed, though, because he, he put me in the film. But he put me in the beginning bit. I didn't realise. He put me in the beginning bit where he was, I think, rolling around the floor. He'd been drinking or whatever. And then he's watching one of his old old fights. They see him against me, so he's gone. And I've I've never boxed him, but he decided to put it into the film and him beating me. I was like that. Ah. But when we were juniors, at one stage we was going to end up boxing each other. So he obviously thought he could have beat me. So <laughs> no, I remember that bit. Yeah, you're right. He's in his living room and he's reliving yeah. his glory days and wondering where it yeah. where it all went wrong. From the point of view of the popularity of 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 this place, of, of boxing, amateur boxing across London in general, is it the same now as it was when, when you were starting? Are the same number of people coming through the doors? Uh, I've got quite a few kids coming down. It's the same old story. They say they're going to come in, box for England, win the Olympics, win the Olympics and then turn professional. 
which I would not sit there and go, yeah, shut up, mate, what are you talking about? I'd just nod with them, nod with them, nod with them, and I'll go, so how old are you? Some of them are about 13, 11, 12, whereas you get some people that come in when they're about 34 years of age, and they're going to do all of that along. So you just let them come in, let them get involved, let them be part of the club. Let them, so I've got two sessions where the beginners come in, which are those sort of kids, let them move about, teach them boxing, keep them in here rather than be outside. And then the second group that come in, they're the ones that actually compete, and I'll try and get them to the highest bet that they can get or the highest position that they can get to. But like I said, it's it's you know if you if you get some good fighters who come through, then that's that's very satisfying to be able to coach somebody to yeah. a to a title. But it's it's really it's just as much about the ones who who come in here and increase their self esteem, gather a bit of confidence, get a bit of direction, a bit of a bit of focus because I didn't you grew up in London I, I didn't and it seems to me that this is not an easy place to be to, to be a young person if you've got a lot of money then it's probably easier money makes everything easier yeah, but if, if money and jobs are tight and yeah. you know, the gang culture and that's on the rise at the minute apparently well, I mean it's, um, it's, it's, it's difficult yeah you've got different areas of living so I see that this, I lived on an estate where when I was growing up multicultural estate but everyone that was on that estate was all together. There was no separation this, separation that. If my mum was out working, which she was most of the time, I was going around my friend's house, who was, who was black, Asian, and they would, mum and dad were cooking us food. Same with them. If their mum and dad was out, they'd be around our house having something to eat until their mum when that came in. So, but now there's, there's sort of, there's, there's none of that no more. It's all, all separate, and that's why I say when they come in here, we're always, I teach all these lot, even the keep fitters come in, everyone's the same, everyone's the same, and they all got to go in the same direction. Boxing's always been that way, hasn't it? When, when you think about some of the barriers that society's had to break down over the years, and, and it's a work in progress still now, and you think you're making some progress, and then things can tend to slip every now and again, but everybody is equal when they walk through the, through the doors of, of the gym. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think sport in general is good for that sort of thing, but I think yeah. boxing more so probably than any of them. Um, Small Heath Boxing Club was very, very uh, multi multicultural, multi ethnics. It was and it was just Irish, Blacks, Asians, white. It was, white throw it all in, and but it was never ever an issue at all with anyone. Uh, and also there have been, um, and it's and it's still like that now. I don't I don't go up there very often. So it's, in town and I live on the outskirts of Birmingham now but you know the odd time and uh, hasn't changed really Pat's still there and he's, he's about 87 or 86 or 87 now and he's uh, but still, you see you, I mean you see so many kids in there and you do think I wonder if they weren't in here five nights a week what would they be up to because you know some of them don't necessarily come from the most stable of homes you know so and, and as you mentioned you know young kids too much time on the hands, too bored. It's, it's easy to get into, go down the wrong direction. So, but so it goes back to that again, where we we're saying in London, where a lot of things are expensive. So a lot of the kids are going out. They make a lot of them earn how to earn, earn a bit of money by either selling a bit of drugs or or getting up to no good or nicking stuff. So when we were kids, I said one of the main things I was doing was if there was something there to nick, that's what I'd have. I'd have that. Never done drugs or never done anything like that. But, um, 
like, like round there when I first moved moved here from Croydon, this area was one the one of the worst areas in London, or one of the most deprived areas in London. But now, so 20 years later, I say give it another 20 years, this place will be totally different. I say there's there's a lot of I live in Croydon. There was a lot of kids that lived there and now living in Croydon because they're all moving out from where this area is too expensive. Or the council sold off all the properties and decided to move everyone out. I mean, London changes. It, it changes pretty quick, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I've been here down here for 20 years now and I don't know, one of the first things I noticed when I got down here, because it used to make me laugh, was, was, was just the front that the kids had down here. I grew up in a sleepy rural town and it was great. Like there was, you know, there was enough to do to make it interesting, but there wasn't that much going on. You couldn't really get into any trouble. I remember coming down here, yeah, it was 1999, Bethnal Green I was living in, and I was just blown away by just the attitude of, of, the, of what I thought were children. And I just realised that really just to get through the day here, you kind of need that. Um some of the kids down here, they're very polite. I say some of the kids up where I live are a bit rude and whatever. It's changing a little bit. But the kids down here are very polite and they're very grown up. They're very grown up. And I remember the parking meters around here in the old days when everyone used to do the parking meters. And the, the kids were very clued up, knew, knew how to do the little scams and do whatever. And I remember coming here one day, parking my van over the road, sticking my money in the meter. So I didn't get a ticket, only for an hour. And I put the wrong amount of money in there. So I pressed the button, all of a sudden, all this money come out like a fruit machine, about 20 quid. So I thought, what happened there? Well, all right. So I stuck my money in, stuck the rest in my pocket. And this happened for about three weeks. I was going to the same ticket machine over there, sticking my money in, all this money was coming out. So I was like, okay. Done it at another place at the Oval, parked down there. Same thing happening. I thought, well, let's try that, see if it works. And it worked. So anyway, one day, I was over there, stuck my money in the machine, and the machine nicked me money. So I started banging it and all that, trying to get my money out, and I was like, no, I'm not having that, I want my money back. So I came over here to use the phone, and I was going to ring up the, the company about taking my money, and I sort of turned around, and as I turned around to look at the machine, there was two kids loitering about, and I thought, straight away, I thought, oh, and these two are up the same. So anyway, I walked over here, hid behind the van, watched them, and they walked over to the machine, so I quickly ran back, and I went to the two kids, I went, oi, I said, what are you two up to? They was like, went all quiet, so then straight away I was like, um, I know you rigged the machine up and done whatever, got talking to them, next thing you know, it turns out that they'd done all the machines in the whole of this area, so they must have been making an absolute killing every day with, with earning money. So I was like, I laughed about it, I thought, all right, Leave this machine to me. And they was like, yeah, good as gold. It was quite funny. As soon as they found out, I came over here, they definitely looked after me. So. It's amazing how kind of resourceful and, and ingenious um, kids in, 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 well, in all sorts of places can be. I, I'm just interested to, to see what you think about the current youth. That makes me sound so old. But the reason I ask is because I think... How, how old are you? I'm 41. I think well, I'm 46. <laughs> I think generally, young people get 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 hammered by older generations. I think it's always been the way that everybody looks at teenagers and thinks they're lazy, they're selfish, they're rude, they're this, they're that. Um, but it seems to me that at the moment, 
they get a particularly bad press. We've even got a name for them now, millennials, and everybody slates millennials. Yeah. And I don't think it's really very fair, to be no. honest. I think being young now is is probably harder than it's ever been. Peer pressure's always been a thing, but now with social media, it's it's reached yeah. just like critical mass. And you see them every day. We don't. What do you? What are your thoughts on that? It's time. If you give someone a bit of time, they completely change. I say, there's one of the kids over there. He um, he came to the club. He was here for quite a bit. Then he uh, he sort of disappears. It's quite funny, me being down here, I get to know all over South London the kids that I work with. You're driving about and you're bumping into one of the kids. And I'm driving along in a van, I wind the window down, shout out to them, wait, wait, what are you up to? Why don't you be down the gym? Or when are you going to be down the gym with it? And they'll wave out, they go, I'll see you next week and they'll come down. And when they come down, it goes back to that again where you get to know what they're doing, what they're up to. If they're not working, I say, Mick always tried to find the kids that he trusted find them a bit of work or guide them in the right direction send them on a course or help them out but it's like Matthew Matthew down now he just um, disappears next thing you know comes back down to the gym again but he's one of them kids that's got what you're saying a bit of attitude and whatever next thing you know got stabbed got stabbed had an argument with someone got stabbed and I think it's it's put a spark into his head a little bit luckily he's he's come away okay and he's come down to gym and started uh, boxing now he wants to take it seriously so you just got to sit down and speak with him and go do me a favour you don't need that this is what you need and get stuck into it so uh, how are you taking taking fighters to tournaments because we talked to lots of people about this and, and we talked to Frankie Gavin about it actually and he was telling us about his amateur days and he said that he gets a lot more nervous now as a coach than he ever did as a fighter because he just wants he just so badly wants them all to do to do well and just yeah. wants them all to make successes of their yeah. of their lives I mean you've got so many on your hands that how do you how do you maintain that balance or manage that balance between caring as much as you do but you can't take it too personally every time one of them goes off the rails or you would you just you'd never be able to get through a week Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. We was like Mick never had kids, so we was like Mick's kids. So I've I've got kids, so no. When they do go off the rails, it's it's more a case of you got there's a couple of older 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 coaches, which in my view, when when they box and when they finish boxing, I reckon they should come back and help out if they want to come and help out. And then the older ones, because they've all we've all been through the same sort of stuff, and then that's where we hopefully rub it off onto them. It's just, um, the nice everyone. I think the kids, even the kids, help each other out. So if it, if they know, they'll tell me, and I go, no, do me a favour, because this kid might look up to that kid. I go, no, you you tell him, have a word with him, and you tell him. I say because he's going to listen to you, and they tell him they're either going to listen or they're not going to listen. And so I got, I say, 
one of the kids over there, Linton, he's got the headband on. I reckon if he had a box anti Joshua as an amateur, in my view, I think he'd have beat anti Joshua. But, next thing you know, he done something, got banged up for 10 years. So, and he's realised, comes out, works with all the kids, helps out. I mentioned the um, Pat Benson was the cop. Small Heath was the, the coach, but he wasn't re- really the coach, he was the club. It was his club, really. Pat was the, the top man, he was his club. He'd have been like Mick, Mick Carney. Yeah. But then you had um, my first 20 odd fights, there was a guy called Mickey Harkin, uh, coach member. He, he showed me how to jab, how to stand, everything really. He basically, taught me how to box and uh, did the first 20 odd fights. And he just got, I mean, Mick's probably 57 now, I'd say. I think he's two years into a 25 year sentence, but he's literally been in and out since I was 10 yeah. anyway. I mean, he'd you know, be out for a season and you'd be improving under him and he'd be going well and he'd be coming to the gym every single night and he seemed to have a bit of structure and he'd be with you through the championships and everything. And then, you will see him for two years, he banged <laughs> up and, you know what I mean? It was just that thing and I think it's not only the structure for the kid yeah. when you're a kid, but I think for some of the lads that wants to finish boxing, because he's not pro and that. Coming, it's obviously a huge part of their life, the boxing, and to, to still be a part of it, to still have purpose and still yeah. feel a part of it it's something that you enjoy and you're passionate about it's crucial isn't it and you, yeah. I'd imagine down here well, you've, you've touched on it already in London and that but Fitzroy Lodges before I forget I wanted to say this was, it was always one of the top clubs weren't it in London yeah. so I remember when I was coming through and used to read magazines and see the rankings and you'd always see the Fitzroy Lodge would be up there Repton yeah. West Ham these kind of, I, wanna, you know, I wonder who will I box out of these clubs and I say Rep- Repton I say me growing up you used to see um your call would be the London, the London semis, London finals. The London finals used to be on a Thursday night, and it, the place used to be absolutely heaving. And you'll go in there, and you'll have little little clans of coaches. Some coaches would be over there, some coaches would be over there. While as Mick was really good mates with Tony Burns from the Repton, and it weren't until a little while later that Mick went to me. Oh, that's Tony Burns there. He's on one of our photos, and he boxed for the club. And a lot of our fighters used to come from, from East London and come over to here. So, um, yeah, so I repped and repped Do you remember Tony Sesso? Tony, I boxed Tony. Did you? I boxed Tony. Yeah. I beat, when I, uh, I beat Tony in the quarterfinals of the ABA, he was like the reigning champion. And, yeah. I, and I beat him in the seniors. And I, but I'd, I'd known Tony. So you, you, you boxed him, that was the year after. I boxed him the year, I boxed him in the London final. And I, um, I always remember... I've seen him a couple of times. And you, you always look at fighters, then you, the people that you're boxing, you always look at them and you go, you size them up, you do whatever and that. And I always remember there used to be a little calf over near your call. And everyone used to go into the calf and that, and he was sitting in the calf. And I remember looking at him thinking, because I, I was quite small, but I thought he was smaller than me. And then the, day, though, I, yeah, yeah, the day that I boxed him, he sort of, I must admit, he scored me a little bit. And I, uh, I was one of them ones where, Something happened, I'll go away, think about it, and then come back and go, right, I'm going to beat you the second time that I box you, but never got the chance. Well, Tony was one of them, and it, and it actually was someone to, go, to get, would be good to get on one of these one day because he's an absolute yeah, gentleman. Yeah. And uh, when I was boxing for Young England, I was down on the squads at Crystal Palace, and he was the number one, he was the senior ABA champion, he was the England number one. And so I used to spar with him a lot. I was at 71 kilos, he was a welterweight, but, and I ended up getting down to welterweight, but and I used to do a lot of sparring with him. 
and uh, he never took liberties and he, he taught me really yeah. you know he, he'd yeah. bring me on and, and he'd spar with me but it was funny because when the, when the ABAs were coming round uh, you know my first ever senior bout was for England was an international I'd got, gone straight from the world juniors yeah. to boxing in the Norway Box Club for England seniors and then I went into the ABAs a week after and it was mad because my first fight in the area was a boxer guy called Jamie Scanlon. You may have boxed Scanlon, him. Yeah. yeah. I never boxed Scanlon. No. Well, I, he, I, he was in the He, he was, was an old timer, wasn't yeah. he? Uh, he was there for a long time. But, I, but a boxer, he fought Eamon McGee. You know, he was around a long time. Jamie, he was about 30. But I, I won the ABA at 18. I boxed him in my first fight. But I remember thinking, as long as I come out of Birmingham and the Midlands, I, I know I'll win the ABAs yeah. because I'd sparred with Tony that much at Crystal Palace. And even though it was always good, I thought, no, I'll, I'll beat him. And, uh, and, and, and I did. And around Tony, but he was, he, he was, uh, I'd, I'd imagine he'd spent a lot of time in here, Tony. But I know he was Repton, yeah. but he was, he used to hang around there a bit as well, didn't he? Nah. No? Mick, this area? Mick, yeah. Nah. The only time I ever used to see him was when we went to Yorkall, and you see him at Yorkall, or at Crystal Palace when we was doing the, uh, we'd help out with sparring or give you extra sparring or things like that. But, um, yeah, Tony, I see him quite a bit. We'd pop goes to the shows and that because he runs the club himself, but. So we bump into him at shows now, where he's uh, coaching these fighters. But, uh, Tony is, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. What club's he at now? Is he, is he up at Repton? I think, it, I think it's called Omnibus now. Nah. Rep, no. Repton's run by. He was. I thought he might have stayed yeah, there. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. Well, I was checking out your amateur record the other day via via Ed Robinson, and um, yeah, and then you you box a lot of good fighters: Sam Webb, David Barnes, Anthony Small, yeah. David Walker. We we I box young Matley as well. Were you tempted yeah. at any point to? Were you tempted to turn professional? It goes through your mind, and it goes back to that again when I said that if it didn't work out for me, because I, I, when you're in boxing for so long, you can read. So I got Wayne turned pro. Wayne, I think Wayne, in my view, say he's my mate, but I thought he was very lazy, and he could have been better than what he was, and he could have, he could have, well, earned a lot more money out of it. Whereas my other mate, Craig, who I thought was as hard as now's, every fight he had, he had about six bouts and got cut, got cut, got cut. And I sat there and thought to myself, well, I'm either going to be one way or another. I thought, nah, I'll, I'll stick to this. I've got to travel all over the world. And it's like, after a while, there was certain things I wanted to do. Box for England, win the ABAs, definitely box in America where I could have boxed for England once against Scotland, but my weight was wrong, so I missed out on that. I wanted to win the ABAs, but the ABAs just weren't my event at all. Um, and then I looked at my record. I thought, well, I'll get to 100 bouts and then just knock it on the head, that'd do me. And then I'll, I'm still involved in boxing now. But if I had turned pro, I may never have been involved in boxing. I might have gone off and done something else and thought, nah, I can't be bothered with that. Andy touched on it earlier. He said, "You know what?" And I and I wouldn't even know this myself. Cause I'm kind of out the loop of the amateur scene, really. You know, the GB squad, you know, up in Sheffield, yeah. some of the top kids around. But back in the day, like I said, Fitzroy, I, I remember a boxed kid called Alex Finland, and we said that. He, yeah. He, I boxed him four times, three times for South Northern Victory. But the last time he was here, at Fitzroy Lodge, Tony Sesse repped yeah. him. And those clubs back then, and you know, London, they, they were they were really strong when it came to the ABAs. You always had like kids from Fitzroy Lodge, Repton, West you know, they were always re- well represented yeah. in the ABAs. Is that do you feel that's that died off or not? Or I mean, there's there's the last about three years there has been the same when you used to have to come all the way down from Birmingham to go to Crystal Palace. 
Uh, Crystal Palace, nearest place to you is Croydon, which is, that's a night out or whatever you want to do. But around Crystal Palace, there's not a lot to do around Crystal Palace. So I think, say the Northerners used to moan about coming down south. And then all of a sudden, it changed where it's gone from Crystal Palace up to Sheffield. So all the Southerners moan about going up there. But then funding's been involved. There's a lot of funding a lot of paid jobs now out of the... Um, have you been up there? I mean, it's a great setup up there. Have you no, been it's up there? Oh, we, we, we went up there for the ABAs one year and it's, they got everything now. It, it's lovely. So I, that would have been my dream to basically be a full-time athlete. I don't know about being away from home, which might have done me in a little bit, but going up there, travelling all over the world, entering championships and getting paid for it as well which would have been absolutely fantastic but in London at the time now it's sort of because all the southerners have moaned about it and the funding it, I, I don't really get political or I'm not too sure what I've never sat down and thought about it the funding side of it I don't know whether it comes into the amateur clubs or not I think the funding side of it might might stay with the England set up so a lot of the, the London clubs moaned about it and then they set up their own association, which was called the Alliance, which was, was like going back to the old school way of boxing. All the coaches were old school coaches. They're all the coaches that I grew up with. Fantastic people. Put the effort in to try and change the sport a little bit and, and try and make it a bit better. But, um, yeah, it's, it's still going. But I say... I, my worries about the fighters down at the boxing club and they decided that they wanted to go back to England boxing so we come back to England boxing and Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians and coaches from around the world. Each week I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs catch up on life's in relatable ways and have a ton of fun we're recruiting you we are the one stars which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like joey chestnut evander holyfield bobby hurley jenny finch ryan lochte montel jordan new guests every week compelling interviews that you want to hear check us out wherever you get podcast one star recruits What does that mean for the alliance then within within London? What what are the clubs that still be with with the alliance and not with the, the alliance? ABA? I say mo- most of the big clubs are with England Boxing, whereas the alliance are more little little clubs that are. Um, I wouldn't say little clubs; they're, they're clubs that are doing the same thing as us. But um, I don't know. It's just in London, the actual boxing side of it is it's messed up a little bit, and really people should sit down and maybe sort it out and try and get it all back to how it was before what's the, what's the, what's the main problem now what, what is the problem the main problem is it's, it's splitting half you've got these ones that like England boxing and you've got these ones that don't like England boxing and it's a case of um, I think these ones here it's like me I, all I'm worried about doing is running an amateur boxing club running an amateur boxing club making sure the kids are in here and that whereas you've got other people which maybe don't want to do that they just want to go on and do this and do that and promote themselves but 
I don't know. I don't know whether that's right or whether that's wrong. So I think it is quite a common problem across across the world, really, with amateur boxing. Because I used to do quite a lot of stuff for IEBA, and I'd meet people from different countries, and you would hear them complain about each other. And the complaints were: some would be saying that they, some would be complaining that others were basically in it for themselves rather than for the for the good of the sport. Uh, and for the good of the individual individual fighters. Uh, and before we started recording this, you were saying to me that you're not really interested in turning anyone pro from here. And I found that interesting in itself, because I know you've got a licence and you could, yeah. but that's not what this is about, is it? It's not, no. it's not about finding the next, the next David, how you came through here. That's no. not what this is for you. It's, um, it goes back to that again where I said my amateur career... It's made me who I am, and I've had the best the best times of my life. It's the same with the kids. I I'd love them to be able to go high, get to the height that they can, the highest level of boxing they can be. Travel. I've travelled all over the world through boxing. I've met loads of different people, and it's just you know I just I've had the opportunity where I box for a great club, met the right sort of people, and that's what I hopefully want them to do. They want to turn professional where I ain't saying that no, they can't, but they could do what they want really. They want to turn professional. It would be nice to have a kid that comes from here and goes all the way through and maybe wins a world title. So he starts an amateur and wins everything as an amateur and then all of a sudden goes off and wins everything as a professional. But I say it's hard work and it hard work. It, it is. It's, it's it's very very hard work, and, and I know I know training's been something that Matt's thought about every now and again. And, and and the reason you kind of you're unsure about it is because of the amount of time you'd have to put into that one person, um, and then you think about the, the amount of time you put into into dozens of people. And, and some people are going to let you down. Some of them are going to make you proud. That's just the yeah. that's just the way it is. There's no there's no way around that really. I'll, I'll have a kid in the gym that um, if we have our own club show. So we'll have a club show. They'll bring, say, our club shows is to raise money for the club, even though other clubs are coming, bringing their supporters and whatever. But it raises money for the club. So say our kid brings two supporters. So every time they box, they'll bring two supporters, two supporters. And then you explain to them and go, well, so when you turn professional now, if you haven't, it seems to me the, the actual highest you can be is box for England, then you're guaranteed that you might get a contract with Eddie Hearn or something like that. He's got the pick of all all the top top fighters. But then, if you haven't done that opportunity, you all of a sudden decide to turn professional. You've got to find a promoter, find your promoter. Once you find your promoter, the promoter is telling you now you've got to sell 80 tickets to God knows how many tickets. And if they only bring two people, well, they only know two people. I don't know how they're going to sell the tickets. So I don't know. I mean, it's a different. It's just a different world, isn't it? Pro boxing, really. When you look at it, it's the business. It's the business side of it. While this is the community side of it. Community side of it, where you said before, it's as one of Mick saying, trying to be make them be the best that they can be. If they don't achieve that, then they've half got an idea of a structure. I say, you get up in the morning, go for a run. You can get up in the morning, go for work. If you can sit there and have someone shouting at you all day, do this and do that in the gym. When you go to work, you should be able to cope with someone telling you to do this and tell you to do that. So 
it's structuring you in, in the way of life really as well. So did, did you know that you were long-term going to be the successor, if you like? No. So how did it happen? It goes back to that scenario where walking down the road in New York and then we said what one of the coaches had done for me or I said what Mick had done for me, working with the kids, teaching them boxing. So then next thing you know, I'm, I'm sort of down here. But I used to come come down and I was actually getting paid for it. I was getting funded to do it. But all I was doing was helping Mick out, making a cup of tea, maybe tidying up, doing whatever, over in the rings. And that might take something on the pads. And then Mick always shut the gym on a Monday and a Wednesday. Mick always shut the gym at 2.30. So when 2.30 used to come, he used to say to me, go on, go home. And I go, I can't go home because I'm getting paid to do something. So I'd stay here and help the juniors out. Then I'd go home. Uh, I carried on doing that for a long time and then all of a sudden um, the job come up over the road it was like a community project an old derelict school I think it's called the Black Prince Trust now but it was called Lillian Bailey's old school at the time and over there it was set up as basketball football and I was in charge of the boxing and I had one little boxing ring where I had to um get the kids in, get them trained and that. So I used to moan to Mick, I go, Mick, there's only a boxing ring over there. I can't do much with the kids. They, they get up at a certain point and then they'll get bored with it. And so in the end, I got some mirrors from Ikea, put some mirrors up. Mick had a word with Sid Khan, from, who's from Earlsfield Boxing Club, who's an absolute genius. He come up, he done all this framing for us, but he come up and put some frames up over there. I put up 20 punch bags, had the boxing ring, had the mirrors. And then we used to have about 40 kids over there that didn't want to box, just wanted to be involved in something and keep fit, as well as mentor them, help them out and that. And if they did want to box, I'd send them to the nearest boxing club that basically that was near their house or whatever. Most of them wanted to come here because they used to get used to the coaches. But um, I'd done that. And then also Mick fell out with a charity that basically was paying, paying my wage. And because Mick fell out with them, I love Mick as a father. I went, okay. And I ended up coming over here. And then I stayed here for a bit. And then we got the bad news that one year, he just come in one day. I think it was one day I came in, came in from, from home. Mick was, there used to be a table down the bottom. Mick was sitting at the table. Looked terrible. And I said to Mick, I went, Mick, why don't you go home? And he sort of, he's never ever went home. And he went home. And he went home, went to the doctors. Uh, a couple of days later, he'd gone, had a couple of days off, had gone to the hospitals to put him for the tests. Next thing they'd come back to me the next day and said that he had got cancer. And then from there on, he, he sort of deteriorated quite fast. Within about two weeks, passed away. And then um, I think before he passed away, he had one more committee meeting and basically told everyone up there that he told everyone what they were supposed to be doing for the club. And he told me that I was doing this. So, and that's how I ended up doing this. But. I mean, that's, that's an emotional roller coaster. That really is. It took me, it took me, when Mick passed away, because I remember he first passed away and I came back down now and I used to think to myself, I didn't have a clue. Didn't have a clue about anything. And I used to sit there and think to myself, what am I going to do? And then somehow, I've had, I've had a lot of people help me out as well along the way. 
Um, somehow I've done it. And it's all right. I think it'll be about eight years now since Mick passed away. So, but hopefully I'll try and keep it going for as long as I can. It's, it's not... It's not my legacy. It's to me, in my view, it's it's Mick's legacy. To me, I still feel like he's there. So we won't keep you too much longer. Just give us before we go your favourite, your kind of fondest, your fondest memory as an amateur fighter, uh, and your favourite, your favourite moment so far is uh, in the role you currently are as a coach. What's your best memory as a fighter? My very first bout. I always remember boxing, I don't know if you had the same thing. I mean, my first bout, as a young kid, I got into a place called the Marlow Rooms, which to me, when I first went there, seemed absolutely massive. It was a, it was a nightclub in Sidcup. Had a bout with this kid, I can't remember from what club he was from. I remember my coach coming back to me, telling me that I was boxing. And when the, the actual bout come up I remember him putting the gloves on me and when he put the gloves on me I got all claustrophobic and then through my mind the first thing I was going to go was take the gloves off in the end I went out room full of blokes with broken noses scars down their faces smoking cigars smoke everywhere got into the ring I boxed in the end I stopped the kid in the third round jumped out as I was coming back to the dressing room, one of the blokes grabbed hold of me and went, yeah, son, I want a lot of money on you. It's like 40 quid in the end. And I looked at this 40 quid and I was like that and thought, wow, I thought every fight was going to be exactly like that. And it weren't. <laughs> but um, that's one of, one, of, one of the proudest moments is basically being a coach at the boxing club. That's one of the main things. Well, it's a great place. And, and as I say, thanks very much for having us down today. It's busy. You can hear the sounds of people training in the background. And I've been down here a few times, but the one thing that struck me when I first came was just how big it is. When you walk through the front door, it is, it is way bigger than you expect it to be, than, than I expected it to be. And all sorts of people have come down here in recent times. Manny Pacquiao, Deontay Wilder, not that long ago. There's a real... There's a real draw to this place. And, and I think the reason we, we were going to ask if we could come here was because we just know so many people and we bump into them every now and again. Like I said, Travis, Ed, who, Robinson, who we see every week practically. And we just Every now and again, it's just like Fitzroy Lodge, Fitzroy Lodge, Fitzroy Lodge. It's just kind of, like it's always say, there. It's one of the clubs. It was, it was a club that I always wanted to box someone from and I did in Alex Finland. Like I say, it was yeah. South Norwood and Victory boxing three times. But in my last time I boxed him, he was here and obviously Mick Carney was still alive that time but um, you know Repton was another one but yeah Fitzroy Lodge you, you look if you think of London boxing it's one of the first names clubs that springs to mind that really, you know and, and the fact the setting of it under the archway it just gives it that bit of you know bit, I don't know what the word is but it's just a bit of it's authentic isn't yeah, it yeah. it's got that it's got that feel to it well thanks very much it's, it's been great fun talking to you we will get out to, to some more gyms and do some some more of these we're always just looking to give you a good bit of variety on Macklin's take that's the key look at boxing from all different angles so if you could get onto iTunes and give us a, a rate subscribe and, and write us a review if you've, uh, if you've got time it does make a difference uh, thanks very much for listening and we'll be back again soon get someone sneaking round a corner 
Could that someone be Mac the Knife? There's a tugboat down by the river, don't you know? Where a cement bag just... Sports Social Podcast Network.